Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Desiring the Kingdom, a study of the books of First and Second Kings. Here's Pastor Nick. One man and one woman together before God forever. So when we read about different people in the Old Testament who did polygamy, right? They have multiple wives. The Bible isn't saying that that was great and it's not condoning it. What, what's happening is the Bible's just reporting. This is what happened. It's being honest. It's, it's telling you the news. But you'll notice this. Whenever you read about polygamy in the Old Testament, it's never good, right? It always ends in disaster. It never says, oh, and he had a lot of wives, and they were all great, and they all got along and, and loved each other. No, it's always like there was drama and trauma, and everybody hated their lives, and it screwed up the kids, right? So it's always really, really bad. It always leads to a disaster. It was contrary to the plan and design of God. And yet, in the ancient world, it was not only accepted, but if you were wealthy, polygamy was expected. It was expected. And here's why. Because it was a status symbol. If you were rich, it was a status symbol to have many wives. It was like driving a Bentley or, or owning a basketball team, right? It's so what you did if you were rich to show other people how rich you are. Because you can afford to take care of all these people and feed them and provide for them. So the more wives you had, the more it was like a status symbol to other people of that's how rich I am. Now, of course, this wasn't good. It objectified women. The whole system was set up to satisfy and glorify men, not to love and cherish and honor women. So it was a bad thing. In God's design, right, one man and one woman giving themselves fully and exclusively to one another, that was, a, that was designed to be a picture of the relationship that God wants to have with us, with his people. So Solomon disregarded, first of all, the specific command to kings not to marry many women. He also disregarded the general command of the people of God not to intermarry with pagan nations. And notice this, the reasoning given in both of those commands is the same. The reasoning, it says there in verse 2, so that they do not turn your hearts away from the Lord. That's what God cared about. And what do we read then in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3? that as a result of all of these marriages, what happened? Solomon's heart turned away from the Lord. Of course it did. Solomon might have thought that he was an exception, that he could cross those lines that God had drawn, and those things wouldn't happen to him because he's too strong, he's too smart. But of course it did. The same thing happened to him. He wasn't an exception. And it says that he clung to these women in love. Last week, one of the things we talked about was we asked the question, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Does it just mean, you know, what does it mean to believe the gospel? Does it just mean that you believe that Jesus was a real historical figure? Does it just mean that you give a nod and assent to accept that the things the Bible says about historical events are, are accurate? No, it's something more than that. To believe in Jesus, we said, means to trust in and rely on and cling to Jesus and what he's done for you in order to save you. And so here when we read that Solomon was clinging to these women, understand he's clinging to these women instead of clinging to the Lord. 
It means that his heart is given over to these romantic relationships and to the status symbol that they represented rather than being given over to the Lord. He's looking to these relationships. He's looking to this status symbol to give him fulfillment and a sense of satisfaction. But guys, you know what? If there's one thing we know about Solomon, it's that he was not a fulfilled and content and satisfied person. Take his own words for it. Look at what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 20, verse 27. He said, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of men. Solomon accumulated a ridiculous number of wives. He had more money than he could even count. He had all these relationships, more relationships than you could ever tend to properly in one lifetime. And yet, even with all of these wives, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that he was plagued by discontentment. He was plagued by a lack of satisfaction and contentment in his life. Even with all these things, he did not find the satisfaction he was looking for. You see, Solomon bought into a lie. It's a lie that all of us are tempted to fall into. And that lie is this, that you can fill the void in your soul with the things of this world. That's a lie that we buy into, that you can fill the void in your soul with the things of this world. But it doesn't work that way. And Solomon's life stands as a testimony to that fact. Here's a man who had everything, more than everything, right? And, and no amount of relationships, no amount of success, no amount of things could ever fill the void that he felt in his soul. And that same thing is true for you and for me. See, the reason why is because you were created by God and you were created for God. The purpose for which you were created was to be in relationship with God. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, he put it this way. He said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Now think about it this way. I've got this cup, right? This cup, this is you. This is me, right? We, we are like this cup. And here's the thing with it. It has a hole in the bottom, right? It has a hole in the bottom. So here's what happens with this cup. You, you want to fill up this cup. You say, my cup is empty. So you look to other people. You look to other things to fill you up. You tell other people, pour into me more, more, pour into me. But no matter how much is poured into you, you will always be empty. Why? Because there's something broken. There's something missing. So no matter how much you pursue, no matter how much you try to fill yourself up with this thing or that thing, no matter how much you tell other people, pour into me, you'll be empty again. Right? What you're, what you're needing is for someone to fix what is broken in you, to fill up that which is missing in you, right? And you'll, you'll look to other things. I'll look to my job. I'll look to my family, and I'll say, you exist to give me a sense of fulfillment. You look to your accomplishments to fill you up, to satisfy you, to pour into you, but it will never be enough. What you need is for that which is broken to be fixed. You need for that which is missing to be filled. And once that happens, then here's the, here's the good news. Not only can you become full, but everything and everybody who pours into you after that 
It's gravy, right? It just overflows. And then you become, rather than being that needy person who's always saying, pour into me, you become a person who's overflowing and you begin to pour into others. You become a giving person rather than a needy person. See, this is what Paul the Apostle tells us in his letter to the Philippians. He says, I have learned the secret to being content no matter what circumstances I'm in, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. My strength, my contentment, it comes from knowing that I am accepted and loved and redeemed by God. And he has a plan for my life that he is working out. He's in control. And what he's working out will be for my good and it will be for his glory ultimately. You see, Solomon bought into the lie that you can fill the void in your soul with the things of this world. And of course it didn't work. You know, perhaps Solomon again thought he was a special case, that the rules didn't apply to him in the same way that they applied to other people. I mean, Solomon, he was smart, right? He knew what God said. And yet when it came to these warnings, don't intermarry with pagan nations. Don't marry multiple women because these things will draw your heart away from the Lord. Solomon heard that and he said, yeah, but that won't happen to me. I'm strong enough. I'm smart enough. I can handle it. Maybe other people, but not me. You know, maybe Solomon thought that his feelings uh, of romantic love for these women justified his doing this, even though God said not to do it, right? Because look at what it says there at the end of verse 2, that Solomon clung to these women in love. He might have said, yes, I know that God says I shouldn't do this, but but God, you don't understand. I'm in love here, right? Like that makes it okay, right? I get to be an exception because I'm in love, and apparently Solomon fell in love a lot, right? Like, like every 30 minutes he was falling in love. And somehow that gives him a, a pass on things, right? There's a common misnomer in our day that having romantic feelings for someone gives you permission to do things that are generally not okay. Whether that's entering into inappropriate relationships, whether it's abandoning your family. The fact is, though, guys, and everybody who's been around for a few years knows this, is that at some point in your life, you will feel romantic attraction to people who you have no business being romantically involved in, right? So just feeling these feelings does not give you an exception to the rule. But whatever the exact situation, I think a lot of us are prone to this. I know in my life, this is something we can be prone to. We can fall into the trap of believing that I'm an exception. I can cross those lines that God has drawn, and I'll be okay because I can handle it. That's not wise. Look at Solomon, smartest guy in the world, wrote books full of wisdom, knew all the right answers, and yet he wasn't smart enough to humble himself before God and apply God's simple instructions to his life, and it led to disaster. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. We have implemented procedures to ensure your safety as we gather for worship and studying God's Word. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person, at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. Solomon's compromises culminated in apostasy. It says in verse 4, When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not truly or was not true to the Lord his God, as with the heart as was the heart of David his father. Solomon went after verse 5, Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians. 
and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Verse 6, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Verse 7, So he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Guys, this is Solomon. You almost wouldn't believe this was true if you didn't read it written here. This is Solomon, the same Solomon who built the temple. The same Solomon who prayed the longest prayer in the Bible, that amazing prayer of dedication. That same Solomon who saw the glory of the Lord fill the temple. And now here he is burning incense and standing and even building altars to pagan gods. And if you read this passage, you'll notice there's a progression. There's four gods listed, but it builds up to them, especially if you know who these gods were, what they represented, and how they were worshipped. You'll notice that as it goes on, it says later on, then he built an altar to Chemosh, and then to Molech, right? What it's doing is it's increasing in severity as to, to the gods that he worships, because here's the thing, Chemosh and Molech were both worshipped by offering human sacrifices, not just any human sacrifices, but child sacrifices. In Molech's case, they would put children on a, a burning hot altar alive and sacrifice them. And you look at that and you say, how can somebody get to this place where they sanction and build and stand by and watch as atrocities take place? How does Solomon get from being at the temple of God to standing at this pagan altar? It was gradual, just like in our lives. It, it, it involved a lot of compromise, and it went over time, and it involved a lot of excuses. See, most people don't just wake up one day and say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to turn away from the Lord and destroy my soul because that's a good way to spend my Tuesday, right? Like, most of the time it happens gradually over time by compromise. It happens by adding things, right? People don't just say, I'm going to turn away from the Lord. Most often what people say is, I'm going to just add this thing. And it'll be fine because I can do both. I can still love the Lord. I can still, you know, give my life to the Lord. I'll just add this thing and it's cool because I can handle it. Look, Solomon's compromises culminated in apostasy. This is a very vivid picture. Solomon standing at these altars while atrocities take place. This is where this can lead to. His compromises culminated in apostasy. And not just that, they also culminated in apostasy and enmity. We read in verse 9, The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my commandment and my statutes that I commanded you, I will tear your kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your day but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Okay, we're going to talk about this more next week as we look at chapter 12 and we see how the kingdom was divided. That's going to be important next week. But here's the thing. Under Solomon, Israel experienced a golden age. They were unified, but now that is coming to an end. The kingdom is going to be divided. And in verse 14, we read this. The Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. 
In fact, from verses 14 all the way down to verse 40, we're going to read about three adversaries that the Lord raised up against Solomon. In verse 14 is the first one, Hadad. The next one is Razon in verse 23. And the third one is Jeroboam in verse 26. He's going to be particularly important. And next week in our study, we're actually going to come back to this chapter and see some of the things about Jeroboam. But up until this point, Solomon has experienced peace. He has made alliances with other countries. He has not had a threat of outside forces attacking Israel. And now suddenly, all that has changed. He's facing attacks on all sides. Hadad comes from the south with the Egyptians to attack Israel. Razon is attacking from the north together with the Syrians. And Jeroboam is attacking Israel from within, from within the country of Israel. So what we're told is that these attacks, in each case, they were raised up by the Lord. By the Lord. Now, why would God do this if he loves Israel? If God loves Solomon, if God loves these people, why would he raise up adversaries against them? Is God petty? Is he vindictive? Does he say, Solomon, if you're not going to do things the way I want you to do them, then I'm going to, you know, do this to get back at you? No. See, God, what God is doing, he's stirring up problems for Solomon so that in his distress, Solomon might be driven back into the arms of God, that he might turn back to the Lord in the midst of this distress. You know, as a parent, there can be a way in which, right, you, you, don't, you don't enjoy seeing your kids, like, hurting and suffering. But on the other hand, you kind of like what it produces, right? Like, and you try not to be weird or, or like, morbid about it. But, you know, especially as they get bigger, as they get more independent, like just last night, I was down in my office in the basement, and one of my kids came down. They were really upset about something, and it was awesome, right, for me. <laughs> we had a moment, right, sitting on the lap, hugging, talking. It was great. Now, now on the one hand, I wasn't happy that they were upset and that they were having a hard time, but I was kind of glad because otherwise, right, we don't have that moment. You know, what we see here is that, yes, God is angry with Solomon because of what Solomon is doing. It tells us that. But God still loves Solomon. He loves him. And God still wants Solomon to turn to him and give him his heart. God cares more about Solomon's heart than he cares about Solomon's comfort. And do you know that's true of you as well? God cares more about your heart than he cares about your comfort. And that's a good thing for you and for me. God will allow difficulties in our lives at different times in order to accomplish his goals and purposes through them, both in you and through you. God loves you, and God loves Solomon, but it's important that we see this and understand this. Solomon's compromises culminated in apostasy and enmity, not only between Solomon and these people, but ultimately, ultimately, between Solomon and God. In James chapter 4, verse 4, uh, James says this. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, where James says there, you adulterous people, understand, he's not talking about literal, physical acts of adultery. James is drawing on a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible, which we talked about earlier, which is this, that the relationship between God and his people is like, it's akin to a marriage. And therefore, when God's people worship other things, 
It's like committing spiritual adultery. And so here's Solomon with all these wives going after these other gods, and it's a spiritual adultery. He's sinning against God. He's breaking the covenant with God. And as James says, when we do that, when you sin, when you put yourself, you make yourself an enemy of God. And that's not a good place to be. In fact, several times throughout the Bible, we're told that in the end, the enemies of God will be destroyed. And sadly, Solomon's story ends on this very low note. It ends on this very low note. It says in verses 42 and 43 that after 40 years of being king, Solomon died. It says that he slept with his fathers. Now, that doesn't mean that Solomon went to heaven. That's just simply a Hebrew euphemism for somebody passing away and dying. We don't know if Solomon ever repented and turned to the Lord in his heart. We certainly hope he did. He may have, but we have no indication that he did in the Bible. In fact, to the contrary, in Hebrews chapter 11, where we're given a list of the Old Testament saints, those who died in faith, Solomon's name is conspicuously absent. So we can't know for sure, but here's what we do know. This is the last part of our sentence. Solomon's compromises culminated in apostasy and enmity, but in Christ, your story can have a better ending. A better ending. The end matters more than the beginning. Solomon's life started out great. He achieved more than most people will ever accomplish in their entire life, and yet in the end, he fell into apostasy and idolatry, and he made himself an enemy of God. And if that could happen to someone like Solomon, someone that wise, someone that smart, someone who knew all the right things, then why would I think that it couldn't happen to me? Why would you think it couldn't happen to you? But friends, there's good news. There's good news. And the good news is your story's not over yet. My story's not over yet. And check out this. Check out what the Bible says about what God does in Christ for his enemies, what God has done for his enemies in Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In, in Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? See, like Solomon, for most of us, we don't have a head problem. We have a heart problem. It isn't that we don't know the right things to do. It's that we don't do the right things even when we know them. See, as a result of our weakness, as a result of rebellion, as a result of our shortcomings, like Solomon, we have made ourselves enemies with God. But here's the good news. Here's what we're told in these verses. That this is how God treats his enemies. He loves them and he pursues them. He came to us in the person of Jesus in order to give his life, in order to redeem us and to reconcile us to himself. Guys, who does that? Who does that? Who treats their enemies that way? Who loves those who are enemies of theirs? Who give, loves them enough to die for them in order to save them and to make them friends? That is what God has done for you in Jesus. This is the hope. This is the message. This is the good news of the gospel. It's the grace of God. Do you know what grace means? It means gift. This is God's gift to you. He offers you salvation, redemption, restoration, a new life and a new destiny. And to receive it, 
You've got to let go of the things you've been clinging to and trusting in and relying on that have created a barrier between you and God. And you begin to cling to instead and trust in and rely on Jesus and what he did for you in his life, in his death, in his resurrection to save you. Listen, no matter how you've started, if you've fallen along the way because of what Jesus did for you, your story can have a better ending. And as you trust in him, God will work in you. He will give you a new heart, right? We said it's a heart problem, not a head problem. What we need is a new heart. That's what God promises us in Christ, a new heart. And then by the power of his spirit working within you, he will give you the strength to not only know the right things, but to do the things he calls you to do by his strength. It's his work. It's his glory. It's his grace. May we embrace it today by faith. Amen? Lord, we thank you for what you've done. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus you have come to us. Though we were enemies, Lord, you have reconciled us through your death and how much more so through your life. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. And as we take communion now, Lord, as we pray over the elements, Lord, we ask, Lord, truly may our hearts be wholly yours. And we ask you give us this new heart. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. Thank you.